Welcome to In Conversation, a podcast from Black and Bookish. I'm your host, Antoinette Scully. Each week, I interview Black authors and creators about their work and inspirations, all at the intersection of Black literary arts. This week's episode features authors Kwame Mbalia and Prince Joel Mankanim, co-authors of The Last Gate of the Emperor. Kwame Mbalia is the author of the Tristan Strong series and editor of Black Boy Joy. Prince Joel Mankanim is an attorney, filmmaker, and the great-grandson of The Last Emperor of Ethiopia. In this episode, we cover several key topics, including how the co-authors' backgrounds play into the story they wrote together, the intersection between literature, history, and culture, the process and love of writing for middle grades and audiences, and lots more. So sit back and enjoy. So I wanted to welcome you. I'm so happy that I got a chance to talk to you both about this amazing book um, and about literature and, you know, Black culture and any of those kinds of things. Uh, Black and Bookish is focused on not just Black literary arts, but the activism behind it, um, the cultural aspects of being a Black bookish person. And so all of those kind of intertwine in the work that I do and um, the questions that I'll have for you today. So it won't just be like, well, how did you get your book published? Because, you know, <laughs> those are all, I mean, hopefully I have questions that haven't been asked and it'll be a, a fun and interesting sort of take on things. So um, the first thing I would love to do is to get to know both of you a little bit better. Um, and then in that process, ask how you came to co-write this book together. Yeah, sure. So hi, Antoinette. Uh, happy to be <laughs> back in Bookish. Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, I'm Prince Yoel, and I'm uh, an attorney by day and an author filmmaker by night. And I guess uh, Prince uh, 24-7. And uh, I am the co-author with my fabulous co-author, uh, Kwame Mbalia, uh, on Last Gate of the Emperor, which we can't wait for people to discover. Uh, it's really a fresh story with uh, a, a really compelling uh, protagonist that I think everybody's going to love. And we just can't wait for everybody to just uh, discover and go on this adventure. Yeah, my name is uh, Kwame Mbalia. Uh, I am the author of the Tristan Strong series, uh, the co-author of The Last Gate of the Emperor with uh, Prince Joel McConan that comes out in one week uh, from the date that we're recording this. And uh, I'm the uh, editor of uh, Black Boy Joy, uh, which comes out later on uh, this summer. And uh, Joel and I met through a mutual friend, um, a tiny, feisty, angry mutual friend <laughs> um, who, um, who hooked us up and, uh, what did we, were we, did we have sake that day? We you did. Know? Definitely. And and great sushi too. <laughs> all great friendships bloom over, uh, sushi and sake. It's a known fact. It, it's a well-known fact. Um, but I mean, we, we couldn't be more excited about bringing this book to you. I think it's going to be um, I've always had a love of, of, of sci-fi. Um, I love the media, the, the, the middle grade, uh, audience, um, because that is probably where my maturity level capped. Um, and so I think it'll be fun. Like you well said, it'll be fresh. It'll be exciting. It'll be fun. It'll be an adventure that I think everyone can really, uh, uh, hop on board and, and come along for the ride. Awesome. So one of my questions is always, how does your, um, background or where you grew up sort of play into 
the story that you've written. And I know that there's talk of that on Yoel's part of, you know, having this kingdom without a place to be idea in the same process, but I don't have that information for you, Kwame. So how does your background play into the type of literature that you write and then how this story came into play? Uh, for me, my, uh, my parents are uh, superstars are awesome. They made it sure that they scoured the planet because, you know, they would travel internationally sometimes for their professors and they had uh, exchange programs uh, with different universities in Africa, one in Ethiopia, one in uh, Accra, Ghana. Uh, and they would, you know, they would travel. So when they would travel, they would make sure to bring back books that centered around, you know, stories dealing with the African diaspora. Right. So I always I grew up in a, in a pan-African household. And so when I'm writing, I always infuse I, I can't help it you know i always infuse my writing with that um uh, from a, a pan-african worldview right where there's this you know even even in you know when we talk about fantasy or you know alternative uh history or or sci-fi there's always some element of the african diaspora that is seeping through right i don't care if it doesn't make sense there's uh <laughs> there's like Jolof Rice appears in all of my stories. I can't help it. It's just, it's just there. I don't care if it doesn't make sense in the framework of the actual story. You know, we're using the powers of hand wavium, Jolof Rice appears. And so does like plantains and stuff like different just elements of the diaspora. I can't help it. And and when writing a book um, that's sci-fi where we get to extrapolate forward, that not only the technologies of today, but also, you know, the cultures and how the cultures evolve. Uh, I feel like we always have to just it's a it's a fresh start. It's a it's a chance to say, hey, you know, at this point in the future, um, this type of bigotry is completely gone. It's eliminated. And we just get to play in this space. Right. Um, I feel like I owe it to not only the readers of today, but the readers of tomorrow to kind of show what that future could be. And that's what I think the beauty of sci-fi is, and, or at least in, in the way that I've read and written, you know, sci-fi is that we get to, you know, just imagine a future and uh, why handicap ourselves when we're doing our imagining, right? Just let our minds run wild, eliminate bigotry and, you know, play, have a fun adventure. That's, that's usually my writing. Lots of crying too over, you know, any rough draft edit. Well, I'd love to hear your uh, perspective as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, to start off, as you mentioned, obviously uh, the beginning kind of the nascent part of the idea for the story was uh, our mutual friend, actually, I was uh, talking about, you know, I really want to write the story about how, you know, um, my family's legacy and, and, and just kind of being out of place after the revolution happened in Ethiopia um, and kind of this life in exile and, and, and being disconnected from your home country and the feelings that you have as a child about that and trying to make sense of the world. Um, and you know, that's pretty heavy. And you were like, okay, let's do it like in a, in a children's book, more and more, you know, accessible uh, so that more people can enjoy it and make it fun. And so it was perfect when she said, you know, I, I, I let, you have to meet Kwame. He's awesome. And, you know, we totally hit it off when we met. And, and I really loved how much he knew about Africa. And he, he told me about how he was raised in this house where they really made a point to kind of be 
steeped in African history. So it was, it was, it was right away a connection because he knew about Ethiopia, about Emperor Haile Selassie, who I have a painting. I should always announce him because he's very ominous there. <laughs> but yes, he's always here uh, watching over me. And, and you know, when I told Kwame, like, he knew of his, obviously about the royal family, about Ethiopia, the history. And so it kind of started there, but it was to be an encompassing story for Africa in general and give it a sense of history that, um, you know, a lot of narratives say that Africa doesn't have that long of a history or that it's not written and therefore it's not really, you know, comparable. And so to broaden it up this, we, 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 you know, worked with Ethiopia as a, as a background because there is such a long and rich history and obviously I'm part of it. So I, I wanted to view a lot of that legacy in it, but definitely this is for the African diaspora just to reconnect your roots. And basically that's kind of the, the theme of the book with our, with our protagonist is kind of being disconnected out of place and how do you reconnect to this history? And so that's why it was so much fun. And then, you know, meeting Kwame, he loves video games. He's like, we gotta have video games in here. You know, it's gonna be fun. And there's gonna be little nuggets of, of history that you can pick up, but that's the best way to learn is when you're having fun. You're not even knowing that you're really learning. And so that's what we really put together. That's why I thought it was a perfect collaboration. I'm, I'm so happy and proud of what we did. Uh, and it really came out even better than, than I thought. And I'm just really happy to see my country uh, highlighted and referenced and, and kind of the spotlight on it uh, makes me happy for, you know, representation, obviously for Ethiopians, Ethiopian Americans, and just black people all over the world. Because I know that Ethiopia has always had this symbol of kind of a, a central place for for the black identity, you know, especially in the beginning of, of last century. I know there was a lot of off, uh, writers and, and, and intellectuals that talked about it. So it's all encapsulated in this book. You see, Antoinette, it seems like a very like innocent book for children and it's all fun, but there's actually a, a bigger purpose behind it. And I know me and Kwame share that mission. So it, it was like fake put us together and we were able to accomplish so much uh, and, and make it such a fun story too. I want to expand on that idea of, of uh, uh, sort of this intersection between literature and maybe even history. Was that something that you thought of even within those first couple of drafts? Or did you see that it started to become part of the story and you thought, well, we should do more of that? Or did you have to take some of it out? Like, how did you decide how intertwined the historical bits came with the Afrofuturism and the building the world itself. Yeah, well, I'll just start by saying I had like this massive data dump of everything I know about Ethiopian history and, and the things I thought would be really cool in there. But obviously, once we started collaborating, Kwame really did a good job at kind of sorting through and saying, okay, this is good. You know, let's do some food references, some history, some, you know, marketplace. And I think that's what really worked out because obviously it can be too like an encyclopedia or else, you know, you're just like, you know, didactically teaching people about it about our culture, but I think I'll, I'll pass it over to Kwame because I think he, it, that was the good exchange that we had is was let's use some real references, but also let's keep the story fun. Let's have some video games. Let's have adventure, sci-fi, flying sky sails. And, but, but the name of the things that we use, for instance, I'll give an example is Nafasi, which means it's like a kite, like a flying kite. And uh, Kwame had this great idea of making that like a backpack with thrusters that name it a Nafasi at it does it has the same purpose of flying, but it's also just a cool element of the story. So I think a lot of that that's kind of the process that that we went through and, and, it, and it worked out, I think. What do you think? Yeah, yeah it's uh, exactly um, for for like for me when I'm writing, I think any writer will 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 say that in, you know, for those rough drafts. Right. You're just trying to get the story out. 
And then through the process of revision and refining, you know, it becomes more specific and, and while also becoming more, more knowledgeable about the world that you're trying to describe. Right. So, you know, in the beginning, the very first draft, uh, we will have an anti-gravity backpack, right? We'll just call it an anti-gravity backpack, an AGB, and we'll just keep it moving, right? And for nine out of the 10 stories, we could just leave it like that. Give it an acronym and, and just keep it moving. But when you're trying to when you're trying to steep something in culture, right, and to express your admiration and your love of that culture, it, it, it's not just enough. And so as a writer, we then we get more specific because in becoming more specific, we're also doing more world building. Right. Not just for the book itself, but for the reader. Because the reader then says, Nafasi, oh, you know, that's pretty cool, right? Awesome. And we'll keep reading. Or they might be like, what? I don't know that word. Let me Google it, right? And then through that, we can begins to understand more and more of the culture that is infused in the book. And that's the way that I think reading becomes fun. Because you can, if you don't know a word, you can kind of, you pick up through the context what it is, right? And, you know, in the middle grade age range, we're, we do a little more description too. So, you know, we say it's a nafasi, you know, we say we have the backpack straps. And so the reader knows, oh, okay, it's a backpack, but it, it can fly. That's really cool. I have backpacks. I go to school. I really wish I could fly. And then we keep reading throughout the book, right? So they can do that. They can stop and explore. It's also what I like to call a springboard or an anchor point depending on, on how I'm describing it, for teachers, for parents, for book club leaders to then talk about what this is and what it means. We then begin to introduce a different language for students to uh, become more familiar with, to research, right? And so there's all these little possible springboards for readers to, to just jump off and learn more about uh, the inspiration for some of this book, right? Uh, another example. We're, I mean, we're in the future. There's a lot of spaceships and stuff. You got to figure out a way to talk about, you know, jump drives, warping, you know, hyperspace, different media proper properties, call them different things. Right. Um, and we have I, mean, I can't spoil the story for you. Right. But <laughs> we have several, you know, different call, you know, engines, for lack of a better word, in the book or these spaceships. And uh they got to be named something, you know, everyone names, you know, you know that's uh, everyone names their uh, uh, discoveries, their inventions. So why not, you know, again, infuse it with more culture. We have to name the spaceship, right? Why not again, infuse it with more culture. And so, you know, it, it becomes this thing where we have this really, I don't want to call it generic, right? But we have uh, a story, right? And on all, for all intents and purposes, it's a great story. It's a great adventure, but we begin to add more depth to it and we begin to add more exploration to it by infusing it with culture. And that's the beauty of writing, right? I, that's why I love um, revising and I tell, you know, different aspiring writers and, and current writers to fall in love with revision because through the revision process, we get to specify and also expand at the same time. And it just makes the book that much better. Did you, uh, you all have to be convinced that this could be sci-fi or <laughs> did you go into it going, yeah, no, I totally see it. Right. Like were there. Yeah. Yeah. No, obviously. Yeah. No, I, I totally saw it actually because, um, um, just 
Black Panther had just come out also, like maybe a year before, like a few months before me and Kwame met, actually. So there was definitely that in the back of our mind. We're like, yeah, we can do our own take of a Wakanda. But you know what? This is going to be the real place. Ethiopia, so people can refer to. It's not a fictional place. Um, but I think uh, throwing it in the future, like Kwame said, it's it's the realm of possibilities. Anything is possible. You're not really restricted to having to follow what's in existence. Uh, we can take some of these things in existence, extrapolate, think of different ways uh, those things can develop. And, and some of them I think are pretty fairly uh, reasonable uh, in, in a sense. And um, in the sense that it, I, I, we could totally see them happening even and, and especially in Africa. Um, so I, I was totally into it. And the minute we kind of you know, got got into that space of Afrofuturist and and kind of like a, a, a future of Africa. Uh, yeah, we were both really like excited about all 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 that we can do now. Afrofuturism is actually one of my favorite genres. Um, I, I'm a huge uh, Octavia Butler fan, and so when I think about doing this kind of reading and and bringing people into this, uh, for me, I like to call myself a futurist because. It, you have to have that imagination to see where you're going. And so I, I wonder, like in your in your past or even in your work, how do you continue to bring people along with that futuristic idea, with that imagination, uh, especially at this age level, so that people can continue to build better worlds? There's, there's two, two answers to that question, and I think they work uh, in tandem. The first thing, you know, is to have need an enjoyable story, right? Uh, especially when you're talking about for the middle grade audience, we're looking at, we're competing with, you know, so many different avenues for their attention. And so the first things first is the story has to be fun. It has to be exciting and fresh. It has to, you know, the characters have to be people or characters that they can empathize with, right? Uh, and so we have to speak to them um, and not speak at them when we're telling these stories. I think that's, the mark of a good storyteller is, you know, adapting to whatever audience they're speaking to to make the audience feel engaged. And and the other part, like on the complete opposite side of the hemisphere to that question, is that um, more people, not just Africans or people from the African diaspora, but everyone, they learn and come along for the ride as more stories get spread, right? As the, as stories travel, more people read about them, more people expand, um, you know, get wrinkles in the brains, as my wife likes to say, they begin to look and hunger for more of these stories. And so that's why I think Black Panther is was not, is not, it was not the first Afrofuturist, you know, movie story, what have you, right? It wasn't, but it injected this energy into stories, you know, and, and, and to the general populace for more stories about Afrofuturism, right? That they begin to hunger and look for these stories. So when you have this hunger and, this, and people looking for these stories and you're telling a great story and a great adventure, the people, they come along for the ride, right? They learn more and as they learn more, they want more, right? And so it is incumbent it's not on the authors. It's not on the writers because the writers, the producers, the creators, the artists, they're out there making this right. It is then it is incumbent upon the industry, the publishing market as a platform to give these creators this space and the attention and the money behind it to promote it, to get it to the people who are looking for them. My attention span 
I have a goldfish memory, right? My attention span is incredibly fleeting, uh, which, you know, could say a lot about me and, 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 and my dedication or what have you. But if I can't get to something, there's something else that's clamoring for my attention, including one of the four kids running around upstairs above my head. There's something that's clamoring for my attention. And so if I can't get access to something, if you don't make it easy for me to gain access to something, you know, nine times out of 10, I'm gonna forget about it and, and, and go look for something else. And that's everyone, that's every consumer out there. So if we as a publishing industry aren't making it easy for people to find these stories and embrace with them, they're not gonna come along for the ride, right? And that is my, let me, Get off of my soapbox because I can talk about that for hours. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I I totally agree. Those stories are out there, and and you know, young um, African creators, people of color, have been imagining the future in stories for since you know the dawn of times, right? Uh, and you mentioned Octavia uh, Butler, which is a, a fantastic author, and I love how. In her time, she was writing about, and that's what I was trying to say about Last Gate of the Emperor, where it could happen. And there's so many things that she really predicted almost to a T. Um, and <laughs> what I love about that is that, uh, like I was saying, I think especially Africans, uh, we've been uh, imagining uh, settings in the futures with stories that go, you know, a hundred years, thousand years in the future, uh, but they're not really that accessible. I, I feel like we are lucky, uh, us who are kind of in the milieu, uh, we get to uh, find them or friends tell us about them. Um, I remember even before Black Panther movie came out, I have a good friend who started a, a comic book series with a Ethiopian superhero uh, character, uh, both a male and a female. And now he took off. He has a series. He's, he's writing uh, number three on, on both of the books, uh, but not a lot of people know about it. And uh, same thing with um, young creators in, um, you know, in Africa in South Africa, Nigeria, there was actually a, a, a TV documentary I was watching the other day and they were showing how all these kids were just with their cell phones are creating these amazing, like Afrofuturist like films with like cyborgs, you know, and they're just using the effects with their little apps and they compete in these local uh, kind of uh, either film festivals or, or, or small competition. And they're just phenomenal. And, and I think that's the one thing that I find really admirable and unique about our people from Africa and, and the diaspora is that we can take very small things and, and, and make it work. Uh, I mean, they just had, they literally had a phone. It was cracked and they, they made a film with it. And it, it was just amazing. I feel like we have an intuition for, for these technologies and what they can do. And we're constantly imagining ourselves in the future, you know, where our country's gonna go, maybe, you know, imagine in a different setting with different, I don't know, government, uh, democracy or whatever you're, you're imagining or like a plutocracy, uh, there's no limits to it. And it's just that we need to make them available. So I, I totally echo what Kwame is saying. I think the publishing industry just needs to uplift these because the people out there want to read them, not just black people, people from everywhere. We wanna see Africa in all types of different ways, not, not in the ways that it's always portrayed in the media. When there's news, it's always bad news, right? But there's so many great things happening. So many great historical facts, great creators talking about stories of today, of yesterday, tomorrow. They just need to be made accessible. The stories are there. So I think it's part of our job to, to do that and, and yeah, just make sure people know about them. What, what you're talking about right there, Yoel, it's what's happened. You know, what is the, what is the difference? It's that cell phones, smartphones have become commonplace, right? 
because, you know, the prices have gone down, meaning more people have access to them, right? They have access to this technology. And now that they have this access to this technology, they can film these movies. They can have an outlet for their creativity, right? They have access. And you just imagine, hey, 20 years ago, what would it have been like if, you know, creators had had that access? What sort of boost to, you know, the media properties will we be seeing right now? And we can, that's why we continue to hammer that point now. The, the creativity that you're seeing, like, I'm on, I am on, <laughs> I am on TikTok way too much, right? These days, I am on TikTok too. way too much because the creativity that they're doing in fifteen and, and sixty second loops is astounding, right? And and the apps are becoming more intuitive and more powerful, and they're able to generate higher quality productions, right? And it's just like, imagine if we gave them you know, equipment and funding just to make what they're envisioning, right? The the landscape of entertainment would be would be absolutely ridiculous. And and that's what we're we're just trying to do that. We're just trying to lift up all of these other creators. It it's a long process. It's a slow process, but you know, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. So I'm going to ask you to, to kind of step back onto your soapbox because I saw where you were going and my questions, right? Like <laughs> um there is no way to talk to a, a black writer without talking about the limitations of mainstream publishing. And I, I want to know how, how difficult or how easy it was to get this book from this beautiful idea to this uh, amazing product that's going to be released in a week. Again, I think it's, it's, I've been incredibly fortunate in my publishing career to just seem to meet the right people, you know, well, is just an example of that. But this, you know, it, it, it came off the, the heels of, you know, writing Tristan Strong and the a lot of the enjoyment that people gained from reading that book. Right. Learning. I, I shouldn't say learning. I feel like some people learn every day just how much buying power and desire the African diaspora has. I'm specifically talking about the African diaspora, but every culture has to see their own culture and media properties, right? We will pay. We will pay. I will throw money. I know lots of people will throw money to see their stories, stories about them centering them on the screen, in the books, and comic books, on TV. It feels like, you know, a constant uphill battle pushing the boulder to try and, and get people to recognize that. Change is happening. It's slow. Right. And there's always room for improvement. Lots, lots and lots of improvement. But pe the people wanted this book. Uh, publishers wanted this book it, because, again, the story, I think, you know, I might be biased, but the story <laughs> is fantastic. <laughs> the setting is imaginative and wonderful. And there's such a you know, there's so many different opportunities to create, to, to explore the space that, you know, we've we've created. And so you know, we were fortunate, like people were really hungry for this book. And I think that the reading public will also enjoy it and hopefully pass it along um, the, the way that I think, you know, and I think Yoel thinks this story is meant to be enjoyed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I feel so grateful for the reception we got. Uh, you know, we're so thrilled to be published with Scholastic. Um, they, they were like, I mean, from the beginning, they were just like really excited. And, 
you know, as much as there's a time to complain and say, you know, this is hard and, you know, people are not listening to us. I have to say at, at this particular time, it really, a lot of great things came at the together at the right time. I feel uh, it was kind of like, uh, you know, just the right people at the right time. Although I will say that without naming, naming names, but Kwame and I, we did get one turned down initially. I remember one of the comments was, uh, yeah, it's not really African enough or something like that. But anyway, we'll, we, we pushed that to the side and, you know, Kwame and I and the team we, we behind us was working with us where we were, we were all, we, we really believed in it. And I think it came across. So uh, I have to say the folks at um, uh, Scholastic and even other publishers were really interested. Uh, like And like Kwame said, I think that there's sometimes uh, a, level, a level playing field is when you just come with like a great story. There's no more excuses to be made. Oh, this is not going to appeal to people. This is not. No, this is a great story. It's fun. It has a universal theme. It, you know, uh, centers and highlights a specific culture. It's not really been done before in this way. And it hasn't, you know, Ethiopia as a country really, I feel, hasn't been done justice in that sense, uh, where um, it has just as long of history as, as many other countries that, you know, are time and overdone. You know, the British Empire, uh, you know, the, the, the Greeks, you know, we, we've, we've seen how many of those uh, where we have just as comparable, if not longer history. Um, and just plenty of, of great traditions and folklore that are fun, uh, stories about monsters and, and things that people relate the world over. And so I think that sometimes it's just undeniable what you put together. And I know that the belief Kwame and I was undeniable and probably contagious because we really believed in this and we were like, we're, we're going to take it all the way and this is going to get published. And, and, and we really are grateful and, and prayed that it would be done in a big way. And so I think we both feel really fortunate for that. We've talked a lot about your love of middle grade. Is there a, a thought of writing for adults? Is there you know, a YA story that's a little bit older in there. What What are your sort of next projects and whether those are going to be within the same realm? Not a lot of people like middle grades. I mean, not a, I won't even say that. A lot of people who teach middle schoolers <laughs> don't like middle grades. And so I'd love to hear your love of children in that age range. I think the middle grade age range is fantastic. And I'm wondering, you know, this is just me speculating um, and actually the first time vocalizing it. But I thought about, you know, there was this um, movement from um, as the as the YA category became specifically the YA fantasy. But, you know, generally the, the, the YA age range in general, you know, became more prolific. You saw more adults, you know, uh, reading the, the YA um, stories. Just because there was, uh, just in my personal opinion, you know, the the there was more expansive, more focused. They were becoming more prolific. We tackle different topics, right? And they they were just enjoyable. And I'm seeing the same thing happen in the middle grade, you know, age range, where um, I feel like the middle grade is is one of the the uh, first stages uh, of age range where the stories become complex, right? Characters become complex, but it's still fun, right? It's still fun. It's still enjoyable, which is one of the reasons I really love writing middle grade is because I feel like you're allowed to be silly. And I think the world needs a good injection of silliness to, to along with, you know, the, it's a balance with all the seriousness that goes on. Um, and uh <sighs> Middle grade, the middle grade books, 
you know, tend to be um, one of the, 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 the characters are beginning to learn more of the world outside of what they immediately were, you know, grow up, uh, had, had grown up in, right. They begin to explore more. And I feel like people like to, you know, um, um, revisit that, that feeling of wonder, that sense of exploring, you know, exploration for the first time, right. They want to recapture that, uh, because there's nothing like seeing a new place for the first time and being filled with excitement and wonder, right. Like it's one of like it's one of the reasons why, you know, I would use I don't do it anymore, but I would like, you know, hey, you know, uh, kid of mine, let's go watch, you know, that new kids movie that just came out. Right. And they're like, I don't want to. I'm like, I want to let me recapture that wonder. Um, and I feel like that's that's what's happening with middle grade. And it's one reason why I enjoy writing it, because we get to explore complex themes while still putting poop jokes in the book. Right. Like. <laughs> That's the yeah. best of both worlds, right? <laughs> talking, talking about the different um, stages of grief and balancing it with happiness and joy, right? And how we can navigate from one to the other and then slipping poop jokes inside of it. That's a win. That's a win for everyone, right? And that, that's my soapbox. I'm not getting off of that soapbox. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's really so much fun. And, and um, I have to say, I don't have that much experience. Kwame is a multi-book author of, of middle grade. But, uh, and I admit that my first one was reading was actually Tristan Strong. Uh, and I really loved it. And um, I just remember initially thinking, okay, writing a children's book would be much easier. Because it's, you know, I don't have to like make these grand statements or, or these like very, uh, you know, detailed, nuanced, uh, you know, paragraphs about this and that. Um, and then when we started doing the first drafts, I remember reading and saying, oh, actually, it's hard because there, there's you also have to challenge yourself to make these, uh, you know, themes or, or, or certain truths about life, quote unquote. Uh, in a very simple way, which, which is a great challenge for adults. Cause I think that when you can express an idea and go on for, for, for hours talking about it, um, it, it's, you know, you don't have any limitation, but I feel like it, it brings you back to kind of in the childlike, uh, mind state where it's like certain things that sound very simple and true, usually kind of, you know, they, they, they last, they, you know, they, they stand the test of time. As we grow as adults, we try to add so much complexity to things, which, you know, and most times it's, it's warranted, but there's also certain truths of life that hit you because they're just so pretty straightforward and they could come out of the, out of the mouth of a kid who's like nine year old. Uh, and so I think that was the challenge. It seems easy, but it's actually not when um, you want to still be fun. You don't want to sound like you're talking down to, to kids either. Uh, like Kwame said, we use a lot of like language and we wanted to challenge them, even if the word is not readily apparent, um, you know, maybe do a little research or within the context, you'll get it. But it's kind of striking that balance where um, you're, you're, you're still conveying a really potent story, but uh, you also have to kind of pare down your, your punchlines and your, and your, and your truth about your, your story. Um, so middle grade, I will say is, a, is really an art. And, and I, Tip my hat to you, Kwame, and all middle grade <laughs> authors, because on my first foray, I, I came in thinking, oh, it'll be so easy. But there's a lot of technique to it. And, and I think it enriches you as a as a writer and just as a, as a you know, creator. To, to your point, Joel, uh, I think like a month ago, my 10 year old daughter was like, 
I, I don't know. I don't know if we were in the car or, or what we were doing. She was like, Dad, if atoms don't touch, we are all made of atoms. How do we feel anything? And I'm just like, yeah. I don't know, right? And then she goes, you know, skipping off to doodle kawaii anime characters, and I'm just like, you know, that's that's middle grade right there, right? Grappling with understanding and being cute, like that's wrap it all up, you know, toss in an adventure. And that's that's what I love about writing for that age range, because there's that duality of child of of still that childlike innocence and the growing awareness of what's beyond them. Right. And trying to reconcile the two. Yeah. Do you do you slip in any um, nuggets for adults knowing that there are adults reading these books uh, more often than they used to? Every book that I write, every middle grade book that I write throws absolute shade at adults and grownups. <laughs> like uh, we don't hold back. Right. Because they're weird. Grownups are weird. They're always doing ridiculous things like taking their money and then like paying, you know, someone else. Uh, you know, oh, there's all these bills. Like, why do they have so many bills? And, you know, just why don't they still drink from the hose outside? When did that stop? Right. Like grownups are weird. And so I think there's a lot of self-deprecating humor. Right. Where uh, we continually ask, you know, the adults who in this case, a lot of times they're the gatekeepers. Right. Because the, the for in most cases, um, the the middle grade audience, they're not reading or they're not buying these books, right? Someone is buying it for them, whether it's uh, a librarian, whether it's a teacher, you know, for their classroom or whether it's a parent, you know, for, for the kid at home. Um, they're the gatekeeper for this book. And so there's a lot of self-deprecating humor, um, poking fun at adults and grownups. And it's all in, you know, tongue in cheek and and fun. But um, it's it's. The humor is humor that I think everyone can enjoy. And as an adult, you read it and you're like, yeah, okay, yes, that's me. Fine. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I uh, spent all day um, making a single pot of rice because I kept getting distracted by emails and burning the rice. So there's 12 pots with burnt rice in the sink. Uh, we ended up going to McDonald's, which my nine-year-old asked to do anyway. And I told her, did you have McDonald's money? And she said, no. And so that was a whole thing. And, you know, we should have just went to McDonald's in the first place. Right. And it's like poking fun at adults is like 40% of uh, my shtick. It's, it's got to happen. I don't care what book it's in. I don't care if it's uh, alien fantasy. Right. And there are, uh, you grow and split off from your parent like a starfish, right? A polyp just popping off. We're going to make fun of that older clone because they made some really suspect choices. Yeah. Uh, I love um, uh, middle grade um, uh, books in, in that sense that it opened my eyes to realize that actually those type of stories uh, are actually the ones that the most people can relate to, um, you know, because we're all we're all really kind of, uh, we still have that inner child in us and, uh, we actually do want sometimes to goof off or, or go and drink water off the hose or, you know, pick your nose, like, you know, and, and have no like, uh, inhibitions about it. And I feel like that's why it resonates with so many people. If you look at a lot of these big stories that have traveled around the world, you know, thinking about, for instance, you know, the Lion King or, um, uh, you know, the, even books like the, the little Prince, uh, the alchemist, they're, they're, they're kind of these stories that are very universal because it, it kind of 
uh, hits you in your prime kind of child that we all have. And they tend to tell uh, stories that are very relatable. Um, and so I think it's it's actually a way of opening up, you know, Harry Potter, same thing too, like adults love them. Um, and I think that's the great asset. It is, it, 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 it is to a, a writer to be able to invite more people in. And uh, even if it's uh, in, a, in a kind of the view of a, of a child and, and of a younger person, uh, it's something that's accessible to everybody because everybody has been that age. Um, and they're just much more fun because that's really what we do as adults. All we do is try to provide for ourselves and our family. But then at the end of the day, we want to be, you know, at home and watch a movie, read a book, go out. We want entertainment. We want fun. And as a child, you have that. And that's your world. That's all you have to worry about. Just have fun, go to class, make some friends, uh, you know, play, play outside for recess. Uh, and I think as, as adults, we all miss that. That's why I think these stories tend to draw a lot of people. So it's a lot of fun to, to um, uh, present a story that's really deep, but, uh, but, but a kind of universal, easy to understand way. And to your point, Joel, uh, uh, about stories that resonate, there's this, like trend going around TikTok right now, right? Right. Where everyone is recreating that one scene from the Sandlot uh, where they jump the fence to get the ball from the massive scary dog. Right. And then they, you know, they're running away, trying to run back to hop over the fence and the, it's all in slow motion and the dog is chasing them. Like there, there are elements of these stories. Like the Sandlot came out like 30 years ago, 30, 35, you know, it's, it's nineties. Uh, 90s, I want to say, is when it is when it came out. And that that idea of, you know, a bunch of kids, a new kid in town, all they want to do is they want to play right a sport. All they want to do is they want to play a game. And there's always something that's preventing them. And someone hits the ball over the fence. I don't care what society or culture you live in. There is an encounter where if a group of kids are playing and the and the ball or whatever they're playing with, the Frisbee, the kite, go somewhere where they're not supposed to go. And there's something scary there, right? I, dog, wolf, bionic lioness. Like, I don't care what yeah, th that element, right? Of trying to recover your toy so that you can continue playing. Like it's prevalent in a lot of different cultures. And, that, and just like, like Yoel was saying, that's what resonates about the middle grade experience. We remember that. I remember, you know, losing a Frisbee over a fence and like standing there for an hour trying to figure out how I'm going to get it back while, you know, not getting bitten. Right. Like the ubiquitous experience is what resonates. And we find that so often in the middle grade uh, uh, genre. What kind of advice would you have for um, authors that are coming up now? Um, whether they want to do trade publishing or independent publishing, which is a, a lot of the authors that I tend to work with are, are independent authors or self-published? I always give two pieces of advice. One's highly specific, uh, uh, focused on, I guess, craft. And the other one is uh, just more general. And so for the, for the highly specific one, it's try to end your writing session in the middle of a paragraph or in the middle of a sentence, right? Because for me personally, one of the biggest obstacles to sitting down and write is that blank page and trying to figure out what I wanna say. Right. So if you end a writing session in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of the page, you can, as you sit down again the next day or the next hour, whenever you're writing again, quickly scan and immediately finish that sentence. Half of the work is already done. You just have to continue the flow. So if you can eliminate 
It's all about eliminating the obstacles to you writing. And they can be tiny, but when they add up, all of a sudden your day is gone and you haven't written anything. So as as another example, one thing I started doing is, you know, we're all virtual right now. My wife works, I work, and we have a calendar where, you know, we just like say, hey, here's what I'm doing. I'll watch the baby then. Here's what you're doing. You watch the baby, so on and so forth. Um, I schedule in a one hour block for writing as if it's an appointment and I add myself to the calendar. So I know it's there, right? The phone goes away for that hour. I'm writing and it's just like another meeting that I have to attend. So that way we get to fit it into the schedule instead of trying to, you know, pick up pieces of writing in this highly specific, you know, pandemic that, that we're in right now. And then more generally, find your people. I was encouraged to submit my writing for publishing after I joined an online writing group and someone read my work and said, hey, have you ever thought about trying to become a published author? Because prior to that, which was only really like six years ago. Prior to that, uh, I just wrote for myself. I just wrote because it was fun and how I knew how to express myself. Um, but someone read it and was like, hey, why don't you, you know, try and submit this, you know, try and get an agent, try and get published. And I had honestly never thought about that. So finding your people, finding your writer group, your gang, your squad, your coven, right? Finding them, the encouragement that you give each other, the boost, the energy, the push, you will, you will attempt things that you might not have otherwise. It is so easy to talk yourself out of doing something, right? Oh, they'll never like it. Oh, they don't want it. Oh, I'm the wrong fit. But having someone to encourage you, to hold you accountable in the way that only a friend can, it's invaluable. So find those people and, and, then, and watch how your motivation uh, and your your creativity and your production takes off. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, I will say that um, a couple of tips from me are, so first of all, just for uh, specifically people of color right now, I feel like we're really in a, in a prime moment where there's an appetite for, for diverse stories. Uh, there's the financing to go with it. There's people willing to kind of back. I'm not saying it's all rosy, but it's definitely one of the better times where I feel like people are more receptive and they're just making a point to, uh, try to find more diverse stories because, you know, obviously our people, we've got together and we, and we pointed out to them that, you know, they need more stories, even, even in the film industry to, to the publishing industry. So go for it. And, and, and that goes into my next point is uh, write stories that you love, like write stories that are close to you. Don't worry about, Oh, well, maybe it's too far uh, of a, of a, I'll just say me personally of a culture that people might not understand or, or whatever your experience is, you might say, Oh, there's only a few people that might relate to that. That's actually, you don't know how many people are going to relate to it. There, there's going to be, and, and even just if you're going to, you know, Kwame said this before, and he's like, even if you find just one or two people who will grab your book and read it and it will like change their life or, or it make them feel heard and seen you, you've achieved something uh, of a gift to, to, to humanity. And, and I, bet that it's actually much more than one or two people. There's a lot of people out there that will uh, gravitate to it. Uh, and so I know that we all here come from, you know, uh, uh, different backgrounds and, but we have a common culture and, and, and African diasporic kind of people. And I feel like uh, we need more of those stories. There's plenty out there, but we need more. The moment is good. Go for it. Uh, and just don't worry about whether it's mainstream or whether it's going to sell a lot. I think we just need a, a, a lot of different stories. Um, and to my last point will be kind of what Kwame was saying also about writing the blank page is just terrifying and, and kind of, you know, even, so I'll say everything, I'll echo everything you said, blocking out time, um, you know, 
whatever, you know, drink, snack, uh, routine you have before do it. I like to drink coffee. I, I say it every time I can. I love coffee. I'm Ethiopian. We love our coffee. Uh, it gets me energized. Oh, you too, Antoinette? Okay. Good to know. Coffee. All right. <laughs> and yeah, just, uh, I will say that what I've learned, and I know Kwame said this too, um, is that writing is really about rewriting. Uh, you're never going to write anything good, worthy of, you know, showing to people on your first draft. Uh, you have to get that out of your mind. And I, I also now have moved to LA, uh, to get into film. So I, I've learned the same thing in writing scripts and, and TV scripts and pilots that I, I tend to kind of like have my ideas. And I used to do this where I wanted the ideas to be perfect in my head. And then I was like, okay, I'm now I'm going to write and it's going to be perfect. And it's going to be like amazing, you know? And the truth is it, it won't, it won't just, just accept that, just accept that defeat that it's not going to be good, but at least like, um, uh, Kwame was saying that, uh, having something on the page makes you feel like, okay, I'm not at the beginning. I'm, I'm already in it now and revising, rewriting, uh, you know, finding your people who will give you honest feedback, uh, is really helpful. Um, and I found that it really helps me do that. And the one thing I do that I know some people say don't do is I actually like to, uh, I'll say in terms of like my, my film TV type, uh, work, I actually like to watch a TV show or a film that I really like, or that I'm sort of trying to emulate. Uh, and I'll tell you a good, good quick preview that there's a show I'm trying to do that's similar to the crown but based in Ethiopia with the Ethiopian monarchy and so I watched the crown and I know people say don't do that like I have some uh, cousin of mine who's a, a music artist and she's like I do never listen to like uh, she she I had told her about like Black is King from Beyonce I told her it was like surprisingly amazing and how well interweaved the kind of African American and African music came together and I was like you should listen to it because she does a, a little bit of that kind of music that's uh, you know a mix between raga and any Ethiopian and kind of international black music. And she's like, no, I will never, I will not listen to it. I don't want to copy. I don't want to have like any, like steal any ideas. And I was like, seriously, you think you're good? everybody's copying whether they know it or not. You're not copying, but you know, you get inspiration. That's how art comes together. Nobody is coming with a completely unique story. So anyway, that's my long winded way of saying that. Uh, kind of go for it. Uh, whatever quirks you have in your routine, go for it. Um, and, and just know that make the rules work for you. You know, you don't have to follow anybody else's rule. And once you do that, I think you'll unleash, you'll be surprised at how much you can come up with. I know that I have. So I hope people do that. I love it. Uh, I would love to one last time see your black boy joy coaster and like, you know, when is that coming out? When is that happening black boy joy comes out uh august 3rd so this summer not too not too far now um just a few more months um and um i'm excited about it we talked about uh uh writing that balance uh of interrogating grief and interrogating um joy to make sure that we have that balance and this is this is just my attempt to to um, to work on the opposite side of the coin, to bring together all of these fantastic authors and, and uh, creators and artists and um, have 17 different variations on how we navigate towards joy from whatever point, whether we're already happy or whether we're sad, whether we're grieving, whether we're angry. How do we get to joy um, specifically centering, you know, black boyhood and uh, it's August 3rd. I'm incredibly excited about it. Um, and, and hopefully people will laugh and cry and 
have joy with the stories the way that I did when I first started reading them. The color is amazing. He just, he just looks so joyful. (laughs) (laughs) And also also our cover, which is last gate of the emperor right here. I'm so excited for you guys to discover. So it comes out May 4th. Uh, You'll be able to get your hands on this final print copy, which is, it's just amazing. I think, yeah. And then there's, if you go to a select indie bookstore, you get one of those stickers. I see. Yeah. So look forward to this. Uh, It's, it's a beautiful book, a beautiful cover. You'll want to like keep it on your shelf and then read it and then pass it on to a friend because that's the right thing to do. Yes. Do y'all have favorite local bookstores? Y'all, you're in LA, you said. I don't know exactly where you are, Kwame, if you were uh, in I just moved here. So I, and I moved here the day, like we literally moved into this place on uh, March 17th. It was lockdown. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I haven't visited much of LA. Uh, I've been ordering everything online, doing like everybody. Uh, but I do know there's a couple of good ones. Uh, around here. There's one in Inglewood, I think. I forget the name just right now. Oh, it's, are you talking about you still on books in uh, Lamont Park? Yes, yes, yes. Go to them. They're awesome. I definitely want to go check them out. Yeah, I'm in uh, North Carolina uh, in the Raleigh-Durham area, and um, there's a bunch near me. Uh, Quail Ridge Books, um, Page 158, Flyleaf Books, Read With Me, um, uh, Regulator. Oh my gosh, Kwame, what is the name? I'm going to, oh, I have to, I have to do this because a, um, a black owned indie bookstore just opened in, um, in Durham. Well, I'll just shout out, uh, politics and pros and in DC because I'm originally from DC. So at least let me give a shout out to my DC, uh, bookstore. So Did did you, did you say mahogany? I said uh, uh, politics and prose and busboys and poets, but not. Yes. Thank you. Mahogany. And then I feel like there's I'm missing. I'm missing one. Uh, Sankofa. 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 Is oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Ethiopian magazine. OK, I'm glad you did that. <laughs> thank you. <Bobby. laughs> Listen, we got to we got to make sure we support our own, man. Yes, um, and the one in Durham that just opened up this, you know, this month uh, is, I hope I'm pronouncing it, pronouncing it right, but it's Rafiwa Books. Um, the name uh, means we have been given, just opened up here in Durham. Uh, and so, yes, you know, we're, um, we're quarantined. Things are starting to open up a little bit more in North Carolina. So I'm hoping to get out there. There are books and cafe and there's nothing that I love more than just sitting in a bookstore. That's where I write with my coffee. It's the best. It's the best with either them or a library. So uh, I hope to get out there to support them soon. In the meantime, like you said, just ordering through bookshop and, and trying to support the stores, you know, buying online gift cards from the stores to use, just, you know, supporting them in any way that I can. Wow. Thank you so much this has been such a great conversation i'm so thankful that you guys were um available to have a chat yeah i love it i love my job my job's amazing (laughs) that's so much fun (laughs) yeah we appreciate you having us on this has been this has been a blast any chance that we can get to um talk about you know last gate of the emperor and afrofuturism and just you know writing about the african diaspora in general um, it's just, it's always fun and it's always incredible. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for having us and for a great engaging conversation. I love uh, everything we talked about. So thank you. And uh, look forward to, for you and everybody to discover Last Gate of the Emperor next week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have a great evening, everyone. All right. You too. Take care. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Black and Bookish. If you'd like to learn more about our guest, Kwame Mbalia has his own website. You can find him on Twitter at K-S-E-K-O-U-M and on Instagram at M-B-A-L-I-A-1. You can connect with Prince Joel Menconim at his own website at princejoel.com, on Twitter at H-I-H-P-R-I-N-C-E-Y-O-E-L and on Instagram at P-R-I-N-C-E-Y-O-E-L. And you can find me, Antoinette Scully, on Facebook and Twitter at Black and Bookish and on Instagram at Black and Bookish Blog. This episode was produced and hosted by Antoinette Scully. Our sound editor is John Scully and our transcriptionist is Jessica Ludoska. Visit blackandbookish.com to subscribe to future episodes and to learn how to support the show. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed.